Pasadena, California. What image comes to mind when you hear those words? Perhaps you think of the annual Rose Bowl Parade, where we in the great white north on New Year's Day tune in and see those beautiful flower-covered floats and those marching bands and the streaming sunshine. Or maybe you think of that beautiful city with the tall palm trees lining the streets, nestled between Los Angeles and the San Gabriel Mountains. Or if you're a tech person, maybe you think of Caltech and and NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Well, we lived for two years in that little piece of paradise, and we discovered some things that the typical tourist on a casual visit might not observe. Because early in the morning, on the street where the lumber yard is located and many of the the hardware stores, men begin to line up on the sidewalk, hoping to get hired for the day. And white pickup drivers and their trucks with their freshly loaded supplies slow down and roll down the windows and point and make an agreement And some of these mostly undocumented workers jump on the back and make their way off for a hard day of labor. Watching that reminded me very much of this parable. Day laborers have always been very easy to exploit. They pick our tomatoes. They make our clothing. They assemble our electronic gadgets and usually do not get paid enough to ever be able to participate and enjoy the things that they are making. In Jesus' time, these would have been landless peasants with no union power, uncertain income, with less security than an indentured servant. This denarius that they were paid, this daily wage, this minimum wage, was basically enough to keep them sustained so they could continue to be productive. A day's work began at sunrise and ended at sunset. At the peak of the grape harvest, there was an urgency to get as many people, as many hands possible involved in the harvest because the fall rains might come and spoil the crop. And so it was completely logical for the vineyard owner to actually send out the foreman to go and look for workers, even if for one hour, to help bring in the harvest. The story would have been very believable to the ears of the the hearers that Jesus told it to. And what about those noon, three o'clock, and five o'clock workers? Where were they when the foreman came out early in the morning? Well, perhaps like many seasonal workers, they were off looking at various job sites, hoping to get employed. Or maybe they found a short part-time job for the day and were still hoping to get something else to supplement their income. Or perhaps they were the foreigners, the disabled, the infirm, the elderly, who got left behind. At any rate, their voice cries out, No one has hired us. They had the same needs and aspirations as the others, but they had been left behind. The parable takes a surprising twist at the end when it comes time to pay up the workers. 
The parable does exactly what Jesus' parables are intended to do, disturb us, upset us, make us have to think outside of our usual patterns and imagine a different kind of reality. Last Sunday, Jeremy and Amanda challenged us with the the command to forgive someone 77 times. Who does that? Someone has compared parables like this to Listerine. You hate the taste, you can't swallow it, but you know it's good for you. At the end of the day, the vineyard owner instructs the manager to line up all the workers from the last ones hired to the first ones and to pay them in order. They're not called into some back room and handed sealed white envelopes. It's a very public and provocative event. Coins are counted out into the palms of their hands. And they all get paid the same amount. Even those who labored all day long under the scorching heat. It's not fair, they grumbled. How can you do this to us? The manager retorts, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. You're getting the wage we agreed to. Now, interestingly, the word friend, translated into English here, is a rare Greek word only occurs two other places in the New Testament. One, and it's a playful kind of friend, one in the parable of the wedding garment, the guy who didn't have the right gown or wedding outfit for the king's son's wedding. And then it's the word Jesus uses for Judas when he comes to betray him in the garden. So Robert Capon suggests maybe a proper translation might be buster. Buster? Am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? Are you envious of my generosity? What meaning can we possibly derive from this curious story with this upside-down ending? Now, it would be very tempting to use this to propose that Jesus was articulating his economic policy for the new kingdom he was inaugurating. It's a radical critique against capitalism and the Protestant work ethic. Or we might say he was setting up a new program with a universal guaranteed income, a living wage. We saw here in Canada some of the merits of a universal living wage when the CERB benefits were introduced and kept many Canadians from falling deep into poverty. But Jesus was not speaking to our 21st century reality. Within his context, if all managers were to adopt the payment method that he had just described, how many people would show up at 6 o'clock in the morning to work under the hot sun? No, they'd come at 5 and work an hour and still get paid their denarius and go home happy. The meaning of the parable can only be unlocked as we look at the context in which Matthew places it. Matthew's the only one who gives us this parable, by the way. Because in the previous chapter, we have the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus asking, what good things must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he recites the fact that he's got all these virtues and he's had meticulous compliance with the law. And then when Jesus confronts him with his love of his wealth, 
he walks away. Well, Peter then reminds Jesus that we, your disciples, have left everything to follow you. What do we get out of the deal? And Jesus says, oh, you'll get to sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I have banged my head against the, the wall, this past, my the theological head against the theological walls this past week, trying to reconcile this rather absurd promise with the principle he later on says, but the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I mean, it never really worked out that way, did it? I mean, all those disciples, just about all of them ended up suffering a martyr's death. Matthew himself died preaching the gospel in Ethiopia. I wish we could see Jesus' body language when he promised them the thrones. Was he winking and kind of joking with them about this whole thing? Because it all turns upside down in his, in his later remark about the first being last and the last being first. Jesus goes on to show that, uh, emphasize that greatness is shown by service and giving one's life. Reward and merits are not accumulated or earned in a tit-for-tat heavenly ledger. Things don't work that way in God's economy. So the parable clearly revolves around this statement about the first and the last. Maybe Matthew saw himself as one of those latecomers. After all, he was called later than most of the disciples, and he came from a background that hardly, hardly qualified him to do holy work. And yet he got to enjoy the presence and the teaching of Jesus and become a close follower of his. Certainly the parable speaks of the extravagant generosity of God toward all. We see echoes of that in the First Testament reading of the gift of manna and how all who collected it, whether large or small quantities, had enough. We see this lavish generosity in the feeding of the 5,000, whereby not only were all of them satisfied, but there were 12 baskets left over. And what about the wedding of Cana, when Jesus transformed water into 150 gallons of wine just as the party was about to end? Well, that couple probably went and sold the excess wine and put up down payment on a waterfront condo in Capernaum. The kingdom of God reality is one of many surprising expressions of generosity. I cherish the few times that I, or we as a couple, have participated in acts of unusual generosity. They are fewer than I would like. Some of my biggest regrets in life were those times when I was stingy and missed an opportunity to express the warm, welcoming heart of God. Can you think of some time when you were the recipient of extreme or extravagant, surprising generosity? I'm going to take the mic and roll here and have two or three of you share, and I'll share one of my stories first. That way you can kind of think about maybe something you might want to share with us where you received extravagant generosity. It was the summer of 1979. 
I was a student summer intern pastor in a church in Cleveland, Ohio. And one of the church ladies said, on Monday afternoon, I'm going to pick you up and take you downtown to a suit warehouse, and I'm going to buy you a new suit. And so we did. We went down there, and I narrowed it down to three and was deciding which one I would take. And then she said, I tell you what, I'm going to buy you all three of them. Now, back in 1979, that was a pastor's uniform. Today, I wouldn't know what to do with three suits. But in those days, that was just an incredible gift of generosity. What's a story you can share? Choir members, you're not exempted here. Anybody want to raise their hand and share a story of receiving surprising generosity? Yeah, I, I was um, an assistant professor here uh, with three children, one salary, not enough money to go around, and I had a mature-age student who'd made his money putting up mobile cell towers in the early 2000s, and he had a van for sale, and, and he was talking to me about it, and I'm like, well, I can't do that, man. And, but then he, he uh, made me a proposal that was actually possible for us of a sort of basically an interest-free loan, pay it off over five years, and our old van was dying, so it was just perfect timing. Fantastic. I've had some rich students bless me, too. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Anybody else? Dan. Maybe a small thing, but I certainly remember it. I was a missionary kid out in Nigeria, and my brother and I used to play tennis as young boys in our, our rackets. Uh, of course, the strings, a lot of them were broken. But one day, two new rackets arrived, and it was anonymous, and some nice tennis balls. So it's something I never forgot. One more? Another? Ken, you're getting, I'm getting my exercise here. Back in the uh, mid-70s, when we were at seminary in Nova Scotia, um, I had an assistant pastor job that paid us $200 a month, and our rent was 125 and so we were living on the rest. And one month, we were a week away from the end of the month, and there was nothing left in the bank account and nothing left in the fridge, and we were worried about how we would live. Uh, and a, a little envelope arrived in the mail from a pastor, Steve Skovorodko, who was my pastor when I was a kid. Uh, and he said, Martha and I heard that you were at seminary, and so we just wanted to bless you. And they put $20 in that envelope, which fed us for that whole week very generously. So it wasn't a big gift, but a very significant gift for us. Thank you. I see heads nodding. I think many of you have experienced those surprise gifts in the mail at times, or even an unexpected refund from Revenue Canada. It just blows your mind. But there's more. This parable is not just to focus on the generosity and extravagance of God. It's also to try to change our attitude toward other people. 
The scandal of the gospel affirms and lifts up those we would never want to see treated as our equals. It contrasts dramatically with celebrity culture that has infiltrated the church today. We shape our identities and our sense of worth by constantly comparing ourselves and contrasting ourselves with others. We want fairness and equality when it serves our interest, but not if it means we all get the same prize at the end. The scandal of the parable is that we are all equal recipients of God's gifts. This is good news for the lowly, but tough for those who are in a place of privilege. The honest reality is we are often covetous of those who seem unworthy and yet receive special gifts from God. I think Luke's version of this parable is the parable of the prodigal son. That crazy, extravagant reception, welcoming back that guy who had blown his inheritance, welcoming him back as an honored guest while the older son, who has been laboring at his father's side all these years, never got a fattened calf to celebrate with his friends. I love it when the lectionary texts harmonize the way the Sundays have with the Exodus and the Gospel readings. The provision of the manna in the wilderness provides a window into a new way of being, a new way of being the people of God. Israel was to be this contrast society from Egypt, where they came from. When famine hit Egypt, Joseph and Pharaoh put up, made up a system that was deeply oppressive. Those who were hungry had to give up their livestock. They had to give up their land, their autonomy, and become, they were, they were ground into poverty and became subservient to the state just in order to eat. But when the people of God are hungry in the wilderness, God just showers the food upon them, rich and poor, able and disabled, whatever their situation, they all get to eat. It's nothing fancy. What is it? Manna? But it sustains them, which is the point of our prayer each Sunday as we gather. Give us today our daily bread. We don't ask for gas for our BMW or for a new iPhone. It's just the provision, the sustenance that God provides. When it comes to God's kingdom, There's only one prize, being in God's presence now and forever. There's no consolation prize. There's no silver or gold. And anyone is allowed in, whether they signed on early on or they skidded in at the last minute. In a very real sense, we are all 11th hour workers regardless of what we have done. And God is excited for each one of us that we're in, no matter how long our commitment. As Desmond Tutu put it, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. It's a strange kingdom indeed, where there's nothing to earn. Thanks be to God.
you have received a little poem by Andrew King. Sandra's going to come up and read it for us. Andrew King is a blogger in Ontario, and he takes the, t- the, the t- gospel texts of the lectionary and puts them into poetry. So I'd like to conclude, have us conclude with Sandra reading this for us, and we'll spend a few moments in meditation afterwards before we have the offering. You can follow along if you'd like. It's called All of Grace by Andrew King. Like sun that shines the same on every face, both vineyard and the work, the owner's gift, we learn at end of day, it's all of grace. Upon the earth, each person has their place as surely as each star, its nightly shift. And sunlight falls the same on every face. By mercy, we're all winners of the race. By mercy, every lowly gets a lift. By mercy do we learn. It's all of grace. God's vineyard spans the globe. There's lots of space for all who hear God's call to heal its rifts like sunlight chasing pain from every face. Let none begrudge the width of God's embrace, which reaches from the safe to those adrift. We learn at end of day, it's all of grace. Until our human love can keep a pace with God's, may labor be a sharing of the gift that shines like sun the same on every face. At end of day, we praise it's all of grace.